0: You know, the funny thing about that colorful book Mike chose is, you may not know this, but he's colorblind. <laughs> so that, that's particularly noteworthy that he was able to do that. So yeah, we, it's going to be a, a great study there in New Testament survey and uh, highly practical and I highly encourage you to take opportunity if you can. All right, well, take your Bibles and turn to uh, Galatians chapter 4. Uh, pastor has assigned passages of Scripture for us to meditate on in, in the Sunday evenings leaning up to uh, our Christmas time. I think Pastor Mike has shared uh, some of those, and tonight we'll be looking at uh, Galatians chapter 4, and we're specifically trying to understand uh, verse number 4, "...but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son." born of a woman, born under the law. So we're going to be looking at this idea of the fullness of time. You know, there's lots of ways that can be understood, the fullness of time. It can be understood prophetically. uh, The idea there that Jesus Christ's incarnation uh, fulfills fully that initial promise made to Adam that a seed would come forth of a woman who would be uh, bruised, and who he himself would crush, the head of Satan. It, it fulfills, it is fullness prophetically in, in, in fulfilling the, what we would argue, that edemic promise. And it's also a prophetically fully filling up the Abrahamic promise, that through a coming one, all of the earth would be blessed, and the incarnation fully fills up the, that aspect of prophecy, that promise to Abraham, the promise to David, that there would come one who would sit eternally on the throne, who was a son of David. The incarnation, again, prophetically fills that up. So we can look at that little phrase, the fullness of time prophetically. We could also look at it culturally. Uh, It's a time when uh, it, it seemed that it was ideal culturally for Jesus to come on the scene, Uh, Rome had unified much of the world. Uh, There was a common language that was spoken throughout the world, although Rome had conquered the world. uh, Greek conquered the world culturally and linguistically. Greek was a common language spoken throughout the empire. Um, Much of the idols uh, had failed all of the nations that Rome had dominated, uh, sort of calling into question Uh, idolatry and its value and sort of Rome scoffed at that. And uh, so people's minds were beginning to to become more open. Obviously a Greek culture had that philosophical underpinning of wanting to hear and learn new things. Uh, We know that Rome also conscripted soldiers from all across the empire. Uh, So the gospel kind of Uh, uh, would have, as they would all come to Rome or serve under Roman command, that uh, the gospel certainly would get involved there and uh, just sort of naturally be taken back to the corners of the empire. So, So we could view this idea of fullness of time culturally. But tonight what I'd like to do is to look at it textually. And what I mean by that is to try to understand Oh, not only what does it mean, but why is Paul using it here in the book of Galatians? So that's what we're going to discipline our hearts to uh, tonight. We're going to look at it textually. And as we look at it textually, um, uh, I believe that Paul's goal, at least in surfacing this fullness of time concept, this, uh, the incarnation of, of God in human flesh... Uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, this man who walked the dusty roads of Galilee and Nazareth, who in fact was God himself, God incarnate. Uh, the, the, the goal here of the book of Galatians is that we not distort this gospel in any way. That as church saints we have not somehow been shortchanged by a lack of uh, trying to build national borders or, or we don't do that as a church. And uh, uh, we, we seem to be less concerned about uh, uh, geography and experiencing things with our five senses like the nation of Israel got to, they, they, they enjoyed uh, obviously the central altar, the Shekinah presence of the God on earth, they had pillars of clouds by day, pillars of fire by night. And, and all of that could somehow uh, 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 all add up to this thought that we as church saints don't have quite all that other faith communities in the era of salvation history had to enjoy. And Paul's saying that's absolutely not the case. Absolutely not the case. And in fact, the proposition that I believe particularly textually is given to us here in chapter 4 is this, that Jesus' incarnation initiated a new intensity of experience in salvation that was far superior to any other time in salvation history. Uh, That's sort of a long proposition. But what I'm simply trying to say is this, is we've got it awfully good awfully good when it comes to the question of experiencing salvation, particularly in comparison to the old economy or the nation of Israel, the old order, and we'll see that here. <coughs> so let's bow for a word of prayer, and then we'll look at, uh, excuse me, our text more more in detail. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your love, and we thank you for the joy of living on this side of <coughs> uh, the incarnation <laughs> as church saints we have so much to be thankful for and the text before us argues are far superior and i pray that we would be grown-ups in relationship to our apprehending of these things spiritual grown-ups Thank you for it, Lord. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start out, first of all, just by reading uh, Galatians chapter 4, just verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. Paul says, Now I say, uh, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. It's sort of a peculiar place to drop down into the book of Galatians, but all will be made clear here momentarily. Verse number 2, But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. In our text, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, In order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I think we would agree tonight that human life is precious. Human life is precious. From childhood to adult, we mature, more capable of managing life effectively. And can I say, enjoying it more fully. You know, there have been dates in my life that gave me an increased ability to enjoy life more fully. The events were mile markers in maturity and gave me access to assets that made life more rich. When I got my driver's license, for example, my life expanded geographically, making it more full and more rich. Academic graduations each contributed increased assets in my life. And to top it all off, marriage and the birth of my children made life as full as it could possibly be. In each phase, I had increased responsibilities But I also had increased assets to fulfill those responsibilities, and I could tell you tonight that life is very full, as I'm sure many of you could as well. In a parallel fashion, salvation by faith alone is a precious asset. Wouldn't you say amen to that? Its assets are infinite and eternal. Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 is a passage of Scripture that announces a new phase in salvation history. What marks this new phase is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Uh, We look back in verse number 22 of chapter 3, but the Scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, but before faith came... Or before the faithfulness of Jesus came, we could look at this more as a subjective genitive. We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the law, which was later to be revealed. This faith coming is an announcement, or or Paul recollecting the reality of the incarnation. The incarnation. So in Galatians chapter 4, Paul argues that Jesus' incarnation initiated a new intensity of experience in salvation. Salvation or the experience of it becomes more full. And In fact, I would argue that the incarnation tops off our ability to enjoy to the fullest what God has for us in salvation. <clears throat> So tonight we observe three results of Jesus' faithfulness in his incarnation, Uh, his faithfulness in becoming man and taking on human flesh and stepping into human experience, never to be uh, removed of that flesh. He is still to this day in human flesh existing at the right hand of the throne of the Father on high, and he will forever. Yes, thank you, Denver. So that's uh, that obvious. Huh? <clears throat> um, I think I'm getting some of that cough that you all have been having here. So I have Denver's tie, and now I have the, the water. I, long story. My, I was en route, and my son brought me a coat, and I, I, I thought I'd asked him to bring me a tie, but he assured me he, I didn't. So I had to go to Denver so, and grab his tie. So hopefully it matches. Yeah, Denver and I are that close. So uh, anyway, that happens. Um, but tonight we want to observe three results of Jesus' faithfulness in his incarnation that literally tops off salvation history to make it as full as it possibly could be. So I want you to think that way in relationship to salvation. We often talk about it as a settled reality, as a historic reality in our life, and that's all well and good, Uh, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but what we want to understand is that the development or the revelation in relationship to our salvation has not come in fullness all at once. It has come little by little. And uh, we just so happen to enjoy all of it in its fullness. Uh, and we'll see that here tonight. So the first point I want to look at is this, is that the Incarnation clarifies, it clarifies the identity of believers. It clarifies the identity of believers. And we'll see that in verses one through three here. Now to kind of bring us up to speed in the book of Galatians, in this section in, in chapter four, Paul is continuing an explanation, that salvation is by faith and not by works of the law. This is really the burden that he has in the book of Galatians. We see that uh, in verse number 11 of chapter 3. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. This was what Paul was combating in the book of Galatians. Evidently, the Galatians had very quickly departed Uh, they had distorted this idea of the gospel, probably some Judaizers in their midst who said that if you're going to be truly a child of God, truly a child of Abraham, uh, you have to fulfill the law. And primarily what that was in relationship to was you had to be circumcised. Uh, You had to have that covenant identity marker. And what Paul is arguing is he's saying, no, you don't need that covenant identity marker to be truly born again. So he's literally arguing against the technical idea of a legalist. A legalist isn't somebody who says, you know what, it's a good idea to try to be holy. A legalist is somebody that's saying you you have to fulfill a certain regiment in order to be truly born again. Uh, And and Paul is trying to simply, uh, he's he's simply uh, trying to remove that idea from the thoughts of the Galatian believers. So he has been careful in doing that. He has been careful, though, not to completely dismiss the law's value. Uh, And and he does this by sort of entertaining some questions that surfaced in the minds of the readers, for example, in chapter 3, verse 19. One of the questions is, okay, well, if we're not justified by the law, if it's so apparent, then what value does the Mosaic law have? I mean, he's... he's, uh, you know, dealing with this Jewish question. This question wouldn't have been so uh, uh, big in the minds of the Gentile believers, uh, but it certainly was in the Jewish believers' mind. And obviously they were trying to press it into the Gentiles' lives. So the question then is, well, why then the law? Uh, so he addresses uh, that question he gives the answer. But the specific question that he's addressing in chapter 4, uh, we find in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Uh, And and obviously he answers that, may it never be. What is the promise of God? Uh, That is the promise of a righteous standing by faith alone. So if the law doesn't secure that, is it contrary to it? And Paul is saying, well, no, it's not. No, it's not. So he begins to sort of, unpack this idea of the law's relationship to the doctrine of justification, of how it is we know we're born again, and he essentially says it has no value, other than being a tutor that teaches us of the specific sins that we have uh, uh, have committed in transgression against God. So it's simply making us aware, not only of the concept that we have a sinful nature, but, but Uh, That we do specific things that are contrary to the authority of God's law. And that's about the only value that the law had in relationship to justification. Uh, But in verse, in chapter 4, he sort of turns a corner. Now he's essentially dealing with the question of the law's value in relationship to sanctification. In relationship to how we move on toward God after we're born again? And I want, to think as, uh, I want us to think about it in terms of really the questions of assurance. Does, does the law have any value in helping us uh, to apprehend the reality that we're born again? This question of assurance. And so this is what Paul's addressing. And he says in verse number one, now I say, now I say, Paul has just finished all of that. He's going to now correlate uh, the law to the question of sanctification, Uh, and his point essentially is this, is that the law is obsolete, or the law in the person of Jesus Christ has been completely fulfilled, and therefore it's obsolete. It it really has no contributing value, uh, and specifically any contributing value in relationship to the question of our assurance. And we'll see how he unpacks that. So he kind of uses sort of four different metaphors here to help us understand this idea. Uh, He says, in comparison to life after the incarnation, the believer's identity as an heir um, is much better because before the incarnation, uh, uh, his identity could only be considered as a childlike understanding. Are you with me? Okay, he says that. He says, now I say as long as the heir is a what? A child. So this is the condition of life before being born, before the incarnation. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. And he says, before the incarnation, uh, An individual's ability to understand the rich inheritance that he has, it could only be in a childish sort of a way. And he unpacks that. Uh, The idea of child here is translated. This is a small child. This isn't uh, an infant. That's not what Paul's saying. Before the incarnation, though, somebody's ability to apprehend his inheritance uh, as a believing individual was sort of along the lines of a two- or three-year-old in their ability to truly understand it. Um, The point here uh, is that uh, this child, in this childlike state, he was too young to take any responsibility for the management of the wonderful assets that salvation affords because the incarnation of Christ hadn't occurred yet. The fullness of time hadn't come. Now, did that mean that they didn't understand it at all? Absolutely not. And in fact, the Old Testament uh, 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 religious system provided a lot of props and crutches uh, for them. Uh, But they are just that. They were props and crutches in that sense in relationship to them being able to apprehend Uh, their full inheritance uh, that they had as a result of their salvation. Uh, They they couldn't understand that. We, by far and away, understand it much better. So as a result of the believer before the incarnation sort of being in this childlike ability to understand his inheritance, as a result, the text tells us they were no better than the common household hired help when it came to understanding uh, the household. Uh, The Word of God uses here the idea of a slave. They they had no better understanding than the common hired help of the amazing inheritance that was there. They were childlike in their understanding. Nobody nobody spoke of their in-Christ reality pre the incarnation. They all talked about the Messiah. They didn't know who He was. They had no clue. They had a concept. And uh, that concept would obviously come... Uh, to fruition in the person of the historic Jesus of Nazareth in his incarnation. So they were no better than the common household hired help. And as such, before Jesus' incarnation, believers' identity could only be understood in in another respect. And he uses, again, going back to the management of assets, the best they were were minors. They they were underaged individuals. In the, their ability to apprehend those assets and employ those assets to a growing confidence that Jesus was theirs. they, 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 they were minors they, they, you know they needed a, they needed a help and the law is what Paul is saying. It was all of it was, it was the guardian. Uh, it was uh, uh, that which came alongside and and helped the Old Testament saint under the Israel, under the Mosaic law, help them grasp these things. And, and they needed the law, and God had provided it. But they were minors. They were like uh, uh, minors in age, they were slave, childish in their understanding. So they needed a guardian. Uh, that guardian in the old era was the law. So the law took care of the responsibility of managing the assets of sanctification. So it completely micromanaged the life of the individual. It told them what to wear, what to eat, what not to eat. It told them how to build their houses. It told them what to do when they got sick. All of it was completely dictated by the law because the individual before the incarnation of Jesus Christ could not manage the assets uh, that were theirs for them but because Revelation hadn't completely unfolded in relationship to the person of Jesus Christ, they needed help. And then finally, we note here that this, this position, this reality, was a, was a, was a bondage for them. Uh, it's not something that anybody should look wistfully back and wish that we could have seen the pillar of cloud by day. Oh, that would have been so cool! Or to see the Red Sea open up, uh, or or the pillar of fire by night. If I could have just seen the, if I could just see the Shekinah glory of God coming down and resting upon that geographic location, and lest we think that somehow that was a good and desirable thing, Paul says, no, that was bondage. That was bondage. They were they they could not grow out of that. There was no moving forward in their ability to apprehend, to be fully assured on an individual, personal basis, grow in sanctification in that sense, uh, until a specific time set by the Father, it says that. It was out of their control. They had had no ability, so they just, (laughs) they had a terminal point to which they could truly apprehend assurance. Uh, I would argue. Um, they were in bondage. They were in bondage to the elemental things. Now this this Greek word translated elemental things, uh, this is just uh, in its very root, um, a non-contextual meaning is just it's the ABCs. It's, it's just the simple A, B, C. And, and, and sort of the illustration is, is that all they could do is look at the A, the B, and the C. They had no ability to put these letters together to create words and concepts and correlate and come to more full assurance about their reality. All they had was the A, the B, and the C. They had the copies. They had all that they had and they were left to build nation, civilization, and and there was very little personal uh, uh, understanding. We even know David himself testifies to this reality. He he said, oh, he was a believing man, right? We knew he was born again. And he said, oh, how I wish I could be a what? A doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Now, do you get any assurance ushers for being an usher here at church? Well, probably a little bit. I mean, you're serving. But that's not your, your primary mode of assurance. I mean, that's just, you know, you do that. But... But that was David's assurance. I mean, that was huge to be in that geography, to, 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 to be there as just a doorkeeper. And the point that Paul's making is that's nice, but that's sort of childish and, and not, not against David. It's just all that he had because the incarnation had not occurred, had not occurred. So it's a state of bondage. Um. To a state of bondage, and it's something that we ought not to pine away a lot of time wishing uh, that we were under. We are no longer under those elemental things. You know, friends, we more intensely enjoy our salvation because our identity is clear. We talk about our identity, and the New Testament is just, is just uh, filled up with this in Christ reality. And and we have it absolutely full. And what Paul is essentially saying to the Galatians, and I think it's the message for us to consider underneath this point, is let's grow up. That's what he's saying. The system of assurance that Jesus Christ's incarnation has secured is not childish. It's for believing grown-ups. You know, one thing that's nice about being a minor is you can just sort of Just go and play on the playground. But when you become an adult, you've got to step into your adult-like responsibility and manage the assets that are at your fingertips. Church, we must grow up. We must be apprehending and managing the wealth of assets that we have in our salvation. And the way we do that is we come to know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ more deeply and more fully, we become fully assured and we press and pursue Christ-like character because we can in a way that no other believer in any other era of salvation history ever dreamed of. They prophesied about this stuff. The angels longed to look into it as the messengers of the Message of God to the Old Testament Israelites. They, You've got it. You've got it. We need to grow up. The appointed time of the Father has come. We need to manage well our spiritual assets like adults. You are no longer in bondage to the simple elementary A, B, and C. You're supposed to put all that together. You're supposed to form words and concepts and correlate truth. And bring it all together. Discover the system of truth found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you have. That's what's at your fingertips. Grow up. Grow up. Never stop learning about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Incarnation. The incarnation has filled salvation up to overflowing. So not only does the incarnation intensify our experience in salvation by clarifying our identity, it also clarifies our status. And we pick this up in verses 4 and 5. How did He clarify our status? How did He do it? How did He release us or believers in a salvation historic? How did He move believers out of an infantile state into a fuller, more adult-like state and understanding, how did he do it? Well, he did it through the historic, verifiable incarnation. And we have it here, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, a historic, verifiable event. God is born of a woman. God is born under the law. These are human things. These are events that can be objectified and reported. And history is replete with the reality that Jesus came. And we have the witness of the gospel writers and the word of God that he was Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is who Jesus is. And this is what occurred. A historic, verifiable event. He was born of a woman. Why was He born of a woman? Back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we're told, Christ that is this Jesus, this historic figure now. When we think of Christ, we're not thinking of a concept, we're thinking of a person. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was born to die. Jesus came into human flesh to be cursed as a substitute for you. And this has made all the difference in the world. And this changes salvation history. This fills up time. Salvation time. Unlike any other thing that had occurred previously. Born under the law. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 tells us that he's born under the law so he could perfectly fulfill it. He accrues all of the necessary righteousness that you need to stand before a holy, righteous God for all eternity. You know, it's not just enough to have your debt taken care of. You can't be in heaven as a moral, neutral zero. You have to have infinite holiness. You have to be infinite on the positive side of righteousness. And Jesus Christ has not only secured the payment of your debt, bringing you up to zero... On the cross, His life has secured for you infinite righteousness. And that substitutionary work will last as long as Jesus Christ lasts. If Jesus Christ ever stops lasting, we're done. But As long as Jesus lasts, and thankfully Jesus happens to be God Himself, so He's going to last forever. Amen? Amen? Uh, That we'll have that substitute for us in our behalf. So the incarnation clarifies the status uh, for us. How is it done? Through a historic verifiable event, a reality that's objective. And what is our new status? Well, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. It's interesting that Paul surfaces these two realities. Uh, There are so many things that Jesus did, but he, he surfaces the idea that we're redeemed. Redemption clearly contributes to justification. We get that. He buys us back from the tyranny of sin and its grip that the law, by the way, has so clearly delineated. But here, however, he's he's, he's applying the redemptive context to our sanctification, to our assurance. Because it, it, it transferred us into a new system. It bought us out of... It's sort of that, that legal bondage or that infantile state. And it's caused us to grow up into fullness. Uh, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of one, born of the Lord, in order that he might redeem those who were under that law system. Redeem them. They, they were there. Some of them were born again, and they were being sanctified and being assured by all the, the, the legal requirements and that and we were by the incarnation in the work of Jesus Christ, bought out of that. And we are given a whole new, uh, or a richer, deeper experience, uh, a more full assurance and sanctification, uh, I would argue as a result. And then finally, this idea of adoption, uh, finally in this point, We are adopted as sons, adopted as sons. This is a a whole new concept in the sense that Israel identifies themselves nationally. This is their thing. You know, they they get assurance just by racially being related to Abraham and and Moses. But here it moves from a national expression to an individual reality that each one of us are adopted. We're adopted as sons and daughters into the very family of God. This is huge. This is another aspect of this rich experience of salvation that each and every one of us ought to experience. This is His desire for us. So I'm adopted. You are adopted. And this is a more full reality or a more, more full understanding of what we have in uh in in, in sanctification so the incarnation clarifies our identity it clarifies our status and finally tonight jesus's incarnation uh, initiated a new intensity of experience in salvation far superior to any other time in salvation history because it also clarifies the arena of God's work in our life. And I want us to think about verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into where? Your hearts. Historically, where was the Spirit of God sent in the nation of Israel? Well, we could argue theologically, the believing Israelite was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, just like we are, but I don't think it's fair to say just like we are even if that is the case, the concern of the Old Testament was not so much the indwelling presence of the Spirit within the individual. It was there at that central altar there in the temple. That's where they wanted the Spirit of God to be. That's where the work was done. That's where you had to go to bring that sacrifice, to bring uh, uh, that animal, and to deal with all that, that, that the priests... And the Mosaic Law demanded. And it was there that you found your assurance. It was there that you grew in, could we call it, uh, uh, grace of the law. And if you were a believing individual, you, you walked away from there knowing you would soon return. And, and, and you thought about sheeps and blood and sacrifice. And you had this vague concept of a coming Messiah. At some level, you you embrace that if you were truly a a believer. But here, the work is not located there. Here, in, in this new era of salvation history, the work is in our hearts. The New Testament puts it this way. It's against such there is no law. It's a work of the Spirit. In our hearts, it's fruit that the Spirit produces. It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance. When we walk out of a church or when we walk away from a a, a, a sort of a a bad experience in a relationship, we're not thinking, oh, I've got to go to the temple. No, we we are thinking, oh, God, I I wasn't walking in the Spirit. I sinned. And God begins to do a work in my heart and He transforms my character into the image of Jesus Christ. And I have a robust understanding of this as a believer on this side of the Incarnation. This is the filling up of time, salvifically, unlike any other time. The old era could easily be confused. We've got to build the nation of Israel. we... It can easily be confused somehow that God is interested in sacrifices primarily or dotting every I and crossing every T. And we realize that God even had to proclaim even under that era that He detested that. But the sacrifices of God are a broken what? A broken and a contrite heart, you will not, God says. Look, but all this childish... Not, not in a, a pejorative way, but child reality was getting in the way. And God, by his grace, has grown us up as a result of the incarnation of the person, of the Lord Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, this historic, verifiable event. You live on the blessed side of the incarnation, my friend. So the, the new arena is the heart And uh, and the players are the Holy Spirit Uh, as priest believers. You know, we don't have sort of this whole system of of tribe, uh, a single tribe of individuals who are responsible for growing us and and taking us into the Holy of Holies, or at least, although we couldn't go there geographically or, or personally, they would represent us there. No, that's all done away with. Now the veil has been torn. The Spirit of God Himself dwells in us. The Spirit of God who, oh, by the way, cries out, Father, this is the Spirit's work in our life, that He is intimately connected. This is, this is uh, a mediatorial work on a completely different plane than the Old Testament high priests and Levitical priests. This is the Holy Spirit working in our behalf in a... In, in a way that deepens our, our understanding. This is fullness. This is fullness. Um, so the Holy Spirit located in the heart of believer. So friend, can I just say this that you and I live in the fullness of time, time being filled up salvifically. Salvation has been topped off with a clarity and an intensity of experience that believers in other years of salvation history only dreamed of and prophesied of. Paul's point is never give in or give up. Folks, you have more equipment to pursue sanctification and assurance than anybody has ever had. Maybe more equipment isn't quite the right word, but but a, a deeper understanding, a more full, much more full, don't let anyone ever distort this true gospel of Jesus Christ. We have in view a historic person, Jesus, when it comes to salvation and sanctification. Our Old Testament counterparts had, had maybe a Messiah concept, but they had the central altar and a geography and, a, and, a, and sort of a religious practice in view. And completely more full in this era than it was back then. The historic person of Jesus Christ, his unique identity, his authority, his work is to be constantly in full view, never substitute anything for him. He not only brings us to faith, he is the object of our faith. in a very clear, well-defined in the New Testament way. You are redeemed by Jesus of Nazareth by His life, death and resurrection. These are historic, verifiable events. You are no longer under the ABCs of salvation history. You have the joy of putting it all together. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? You know, it would be a shame to, to walk through this era without putting it together, without managing the spiritual assets that aren't your fingertips, living like an old covenant man or woman who just sort of, you know, comes to a geographic location with hopes of getting closer to God. You know, I, I hope we all know that the church isn't these walls and this furniture. The church is an assembly of, of, of spirit-indwelt individuals, right? We, there is no geography. Jesus is about the business of making worshipers in a very unique way. So revelation the incarnation of Jesus Christ brings all the final pieces of the puzzle of salvation and puts them in their perfect place. And may God help us to have an appetite to understand the fullness that we have in Him and never give up and never allow anyone to distort what we do know to be true. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, for, if I can put it this way, Father, respectfully, the game changer that it was. Uh, We are uh, so full. Lord, we we have a complete new referent. Uh, We are in Christ. We have been given all things in Christ that pertain to life and godliness. Oh God, give us the passion uh, to, to become what we already are, to be the no longer the minor, the child who can't manage his own assets, but to step in to uh, uh, what we are, our sonship in Christ, and manage productively the assets that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray to this end, Lord. Make Grace Church of Menor uh, a company of people who are understanding more fully all that is theirs in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.